On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about George H.W. Bush's legacy in Texas, our amazing project on desegregation efforts in Texas public schools, and the future of a Confederate plaque in the Texas Capitol. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. Bills Up Now, a legislative tracking service that allows anyone to stay up to date on the issues that matter most without sacrificing their schedules. Schedule a demo today at BillsUpNow.com. And AIM, which provides jargonless special education support to figure out why learners are struggling. We are the experts in special education. Learn more at aimllcconsulting.com. Do I have to talk you in your head? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a long time. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, December 5th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey, public education reporter Aliyah Swaby, and demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Good afternoon. Uh, As always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, Ross, so let's start with you. Uh, All state agencies and offices are closed today, Wednesday, in honor of former President George H.W. Bush, who died last week at the age of 94, uh, flags at half-staff for 30 days. Is that pretty par for the course for a president, or is this because of his connection to Texas? Uh, Both. And, you know, there was a long period uh, when Ronald Reagan died as well. And um, so part of it is, you know, I think um, in some cases, like in the Reagan case, it was you know, a uh, really important president, especially to Republicans at a time when Republicans were running the state and were in charge of mm-hmm. where the <laughs> flags fly. Um, and there was some knocks about it, but it's become kind of a tradition. I think George H.W. Bush would have had this kind of uh, commemoration and memorial, uh, regardless of how it went for previous presidents. You know, he was an important figure in Texas politics and U.S. politics for an extraordinarily long time, you know. Most, yeah, ninety-four. Yeah, you know, most people are in most people are in politics and sort of at the front lines of political life for a hot minute, you know, for their decade or their decade and a half or something like that. And and George H. W. Bush was in Texas politics in an important way from nineteen sixty-four, you know, all the way to the end of his life. And you know, that's an extraordinary run, and it's an extraordinary run. Uh, that was, for the most part, it had its controversies, but it was, for the most part, scandal-free. And, um, you know, as you saw in, you know, a lot of the obituaries are um, kind of glossed over, you know, and it's sort of the Swedish view of him, but it's also a reflection of how people think about him. That doesn't always happen. And, you know, it often is the case that when someone dies, the things that are said are nicer than the things that were said while they were alive. But uh, in this case, it seems to be a lot more widespread and, you know, there's there's some deep feeling about him. Yeah, even Maureen Dowd had, like, this glowing column about her relationship with him, how even when she was trampling all over his son, you know, George H.W. Bush would still send her notes saying, you know, damn you, but I don't know why I like you. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, that was, that she caught some flack for that. I thought it was a really interesting inside look at, you know, sort of his personal relations and how he dealt with people and, you know, how he dealt with, you know, in that case, you know, the old joke is that we're the scorpions, you know, and how he dealt with the scorpions. I thought it was really interesting. I was, I'm curious, a lot of the like journalistic eulogizing has included sort of this like civility and decency that he was sort of known for pushing. And then at the same time saying he sort of gave us the Republican Party of today. And I'm curious as someone who was, you know, in journalism and following Texas politics throughout a lot of that, what, 
what is your take on sort of how he impacted politics today in Texas, at least? Yeah, I think there, I think there's two pieces to that. He was the last, you know, what used to be called Rockefeller Republicans. This is sort of the Episcopal Church in office, right? Um, and he was the last sort of, you know, Joe Strauss is an example of this. In fact, Joe Strauss worked in his administration, uh, the Texas speaker who's outgoing. And he was the last Republican president before the very conservative wing of the Republican Party kind of took over. Um, that started when Bush and Reagan were running against each other in 1980, in the 1980 primary. It kind of ran through his administration in 92, and at that point, the Newt Gingriches and, and those guys took over, and in fact, his son, George W., was from the wing of the party that overthrew George H.W. in some ways. And then the other thing I would have, I would say here, you know, is a lot of the, I think a lot of the journalism and non-journalism remembrances of him is colored and influenced heavily by the guy who's in the White House right now. And it's a way to say this, not that. You know, there's a lot of that going on. So he's going to be interred in College Station, which is where his presidential library is. Why College Station? What's the connection to College Station? You know, they picked a school. They decided when they were looking around for, you know, where are we going to put our presidential library, they decided to put it at College Station. There were some ties there at the time. Robert Gates was there. You know, there are a lot of Texas ties to it. But um, he's never lived there. I mean, he lived in Houston. He never you know. Right. He never lived there. The kids didn't go to school there. They went all over the place. Um, but it was just someplace, you know, close that was, you know, I think Rice was in the bidding. You know, the same thing happened uh, when George W. Bush was talking about where are we going to put a library, and they ended up at Southern Methodist. But they were, but didn't they already have a home in Dallas? Wasn't Dallas already the place where they were? I Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to more, me, that one makes more sense. I'm just, yeah, the SMU or the SMU connection seems stronger than the college station. Well, the other just, thing was, you know, if you look at it historically, the the other big university in Texas, the other land grant school in Texas, already had a presidential library, the LBJ School and the LBJ Library, and Texas A&M made a big play for it, and um, so so they went with that. They've moved, they reinterred their daughter there. Um, Barbara is buried there, and now the president will be buried right. there. So what does Bush's legacy mean to Texans? I mean, was he really considered a Texan when he was vice president, when he was president? Sure. And, you know, it was Even though the, his roots were not Texan. Yeah, it was the, you know, the, the political combine here was, you know, the two biggest states have a president and a vice president. You know, it's a California, Texas ticket. It's a Southwestern ticket. You know, it's the, you know, this is not the East, although you have George H.W. Bush able to touch on the East and touch on the West. He's from Texas. He's from Connecticut, you know. He's both things. Um, so, yeah, I think that was part of the calculation. Part of the calculation was they, they were from two parts of the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan appealed to the social conservatives. George Bush appealed to the establishment conservatives. At the time Reagan was running, you needed to have both to beat the Democrats. And, um, you know, probably becoming true now. Um, and, you know, so there was a lot of political calculus in it. There was also, you know, as presidents go, he had an extraordinary resume and a really deep resume. Um, he's, you know, he had a bunch of losses on his resume, which isn't as common now. He lost the U.S. Senate race in Texas twice, first to Ralph Yarborough and then later to Lloyd Benson. He uh, shares an alma mater with Aaliyah. Is that right? There you go. <laughs> Very true. Um, and, you know, two terms in Congress, you know, U.N. ambassador, ambassador to China, managed to survive being the head of the Republican National Committee during Watergate. Um, you know, mad skills. Right. All right. Thank you, Ross. Uh, 
Alexa, Aaliyah, uh, I want to talk to you uh, both about an extraordinary project you all have running. The first part ran last week, uh, the second part this week, called Disintegration, about a decades-long effort to desegregate and keep desegregated Texas public schools, um, you know, a half century after Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, there have been varying degrees of success across the state, obviously, and you all featured a couple of uh, districts in particular so far. Explain to us what you found. Um, I think part of what we've found is that the impetus to actually racially integrate schools is gone on a national level. You know, I think a lot of um, there's a lot of demographic change and uh, residential segregation that makes it harder for school districts to actually get white students in the same schools as black and Hispanic students. They're also leaving public school systems. And so if you have a system that's mostly black and Hispanic, the, there's limitations to how you can actually integrate those schools. Um, and then I think we also found, uh, you know, over time, uh, white flight and resistance to actually, um, you know, participating in the public school system had a really negative effect, obviously, on, on the students who were, who were left behind. And that's something that you see as a pattern that comes up again and again. And, you know, the modern iteration of that looks... Um, similar in a lot of ways to the past iteration of it, even though, you know, there's decades in between those. Yeah, I mean, we, we started thinking about this as sort of what is the legacy of segregation on public schools? And I think what we came away with is that you are seeing it today, right? The huge disparities between the education and achievement um, of students of color as opposed to their white peers, even though white students make up smaller and smaller fractions of the public school population. And so, you know, the, the legacy of that is being lived by kids in schools today. And in a lot of ways, people in power, oftentimes majority white, have done very little to get rid of those disparities. And when you think about where this is all going and sort of these students being our future workforce, the legacy of segregation doesn't just end with these kids in, the class, in their classrooms. It extends into what you're going to be seeing when these kids graduate and start looking for their place in the workforce. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, you feature you have featured thus far two school districts, Longview ISD and San Antonio ISD, and I was hoping you could just both grab one of them and give us the sort of cliff notes of why those were the districts that you chose to feature. Yeah, I think um, Longview, you know, East Texas and North Texas, um, after Brown versus Board of Ed, um, I think it was more notable the fact that that they decided not to actually integrate their schools because they had large numbers of black students and white students, whereas in West Texas, you know, they had a couple of black students, and so it was fine for them to just um, put them in classrooms with white students versus creating a whole other school for them. Um, but it was actually more notable and more of a pressing issue. So East Texas school districts um, were often under desegregation orders, um, federal, federal desegregation orders because of that. Um, and so Longview was one of the many that had just created separate separate and unequal schools for black students. Um, and they've been under, they'd been under a desegregation order for, I think ultimately it was 48 years. Um, and, you know, they, I think a lot of their board members are committed to continuing the gains that they've made. They're under no the longer order. under that They're order. No lo yeah, in June, uh, they were released from that order. Um, and, you know, I think it's, Important to note too that the standards for actually being released from these orders have just, 
you know, weakened over time. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the disparities are entirely gone. They definitely still have uh, white students um, prepared for college at much higher rates than black and Hispanic students. Um, and, you know, white students actually uh, not necessarily being funneled into uh, like vocational programs, like, like there was a concern for black and, and Hispanic students. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, without the federal court order, I think um, in other places there have been studies that show that you just really quickly um, go back to a system where the disparities widen. And if you're not focused on it with an eye to the very specific parts of the order, you know, it talked about how you're allowed to, um, you know, for student transfers, you, you're not allowed to let students transfer to a school where they would then decrease the diversity in the school they're leaving. Those are really specific things, and if you're not required to keep an eye on it in that way, then it's really easy to slide back. And Longview was also a place that, demographically speaking, there had been this huge growth in the Hispanic population. And so in a lot of ways, it looks like what school districts look like today. Um, the other the other district that we focused on, San Antonio ISD, um, we sort of, we hitched onto it, one, because they are focused on socioeconomic integration, which is sort of a more feasible goal when you've got a student population that is uh, the vast majority of which is Hispanic. But we also focused on it because it looks like what Texas will eventually look like. And so if you're talking about how do you integrate schools so that you have poor kids learning with rich kids or at least kids who are a little bit wealthier than they are, um, it could be a potential model. But what we realize is that it's, it's more nuanced than that, right? It's the idea of you're pulling in wealthier kids and creating these great programs for them that the poor kids will also benefit from, but would you have created them if you were just educating Serving poor kids? kids right. And so I think it's, uh, you know, San Antonio was a really interesting place to jump into, um, knowing what the demographics are like and knowing that they have this sort of like morally encouraging goal, um, but the process of getting to that is messy, especially when you have families who and schools who feel like they're being completely left behind. Mm -hmm. um, oh, oh, Ross, jump in. I'm, I'm curious about the difference between what policymakers do without court orders today than what they do with court orders today. And are they going in the same direction that the court orders were designed to take policy? I mean, or if you, as the, another way to put that is as the court orders fade away, does the state revert or does it, has it realized some of the goals are really what they want to do? Yeah, I think part of the issue is that it's a lot harder now to desegregate or integrate based off of race than it has been in the past. And that's partly because, you know, as Alexa was saying in, in San Antonio, if you have like a majority Hispanic school district, then that's just not going to be what you're... Right, that's what, just the way it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Um, but I think also, you know, there was a, a 2007 Supreme Court decision that basically limited how schools are allowed to, like, without a court order, use race as a factor to, like, pursue some of the policies that they were required to under the, like, 1970 court order. So, so if you're not required, you can't, you don't have, you can't so, do it. Right. Yeah, and I think it's, well, the Longview example in particular was an example of how, these court orders can become outdated and how they can't, you know, they can't take into consideration that white families are going to flee almost immediately. They can't take into consideration that the Hispanic population is going to grow. And But it also, you know, there was immense progress at the time. And so I think it also underscores that if you do have a judicial system that is sort of enforcing these in the way that we did back then, 
there is progress that came from that. And as that sort of enforcement has dwindled, so has some of the progress. Mm-hmm. I think the, the element of the series so far that's been the most fascinating to, be, to me has been, you know, how, um, how parents make choices and how, like, you can't count on them to make the decisions that are in the best interest of the, like, collective whole. You can only count on them to make the decisions that are in the best interest of their own kid. I mean, Aaliyah, one thing you really said you learned from the project was the sort of limitations of relying on parental choice to fix racial disparities. Um, Alexa, and talking about the San Antonio story, that district is so fascinating because you see them trying to persuade parents to make the right decisions by offering things like Montessori programs or, um, you know, dual language programs in their schools to try to lure these white parents who, left to their own devices, might otherwise flee. And talk about that element of, of parental choice and, like, what you sort of learned about human nature through the reporting on this project. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the... Um you know, the stories that you hear about uh, resistance to integration is, um, you know, like the, the New York stories where parents are showing up and, you know, actively saying, like, I don't want my kid to be left behind or in a school with, like, bad kids or, you know, things that are... With like, the former Houston superintendent, right? right? Yeah, exactly. in New York. Yes. Yeah. Um, but things that are coded but not that coded, you know, it's pretty blatant. Um, but I think that, like, on a day-to-day basis, there are a lot of parents who, you know, think of themselves as, like, good actors and people who, like, are invested in their communities who also, um, like, if given the choice, the choice that they make is not necessarily going to help the public school system, not necessarily going to help their neighborhood schools if they're parents who are either, um, you know, middle class or parents who are white and, like, have those choices. And, you know, I think that's part of the, the challenge in writing about it in a way that you're talking about a system versus talking about individuals. Well, and I think like uh, Troy Simmons, one of the black board members in Longview said it best. He said, you know, people don't want to educate all kids. They want to educate their kids, not your kids. And and I think if that is a sort of statement that can be applied to a lot of things in education and a lot, you know, we hear that sort of talk at the Capitol all the time, you know, where we want to fix things for all kids. Um, but when you get into the heart of some of these big fights and some of the like, more complicated nature of some of this, um, it's hard to sort of ignore that sort of sentiment, which we really did see come up time and time again. Right. One uh, question from social media. Is this an issue that schools can even actually remedy, given that residential segregation has such a huge impact on this? I think, I mean, again, coming back to San Antonio, like their their focus is on socioeconomic segregation because they realize those limitations. Um, I think, you know, we, there's also, um, you know, federal courts have let districts off the hook because of residential segregation um, over time. And I think, you know, if we thought of like forced busing as something that was, Um, you know, a legitimate option for people, then yes, you could actually (laughs) reverse those or you could actually fight back against that. But that's not something that has popularity among a lot of different people. Right. Well, I want to ask you both um, sort of a personal question about this project, and that is, you know, being women of color, I want to know what it was like to report out this project. I mean, Alexa, you're talking about how you personally, you know, matriculated through schools where the district or the schools were like 99% Hispanic. Um, Talk a little bit about what this project was like for you from that standpoint. I mean, I think, you know, I am a product of public schools in 
But in a lot of ways, I was sort of shielded from a lot of the disparities that kids today feel because my school was so different, because it was on the border and it was 99% Hispanic. And so I think it's been really interesting to learn about the environment that some of these kids are growing up in and sort of thinking about you know, the kids can't be the decision makers. They're, we elect people to do that. And there's just such a huge disconnect between classrooms and what people are saying in Austin and in, in boardrooms. And I think, you know, I think it was on our way back from one of our Longview trips and we said, you know, it, it would be so interesting if every, if every elected official, if every member of the house was forced or required to go into a school district that had the, dem the opposite demographics of the one that they live in or the community that they live in, because it was such, even for us who like, we are both very sensitive to uh, disparities and sort of understanding people who are not like us or knowing that communities are different, it was such a learning experience. And I think just about everyone in elected office would benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Leah, what was this like personally for you covering these folks, talking to these families, talking to, you know, white parents in some of these communities? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I talk to a lot of parents regularly for my job, but this is one where um, I think, you know, we went in knowing that certain people would be more willing to talk to us than others. You know, I think in, in Longview especially, it was... Um, pretty difficult to get people talking honestly about race and race relations. And I think that at least I was, you know, always aware of the fact that I was talking to them about it as someone who like could be assumed to have some sort of like stake or like personal position on it. You know, obviously I'm, um, I'm a reporter and so <laughs> I'm not going to put that in the reporting. I think like you can't ignore the, like having a conversation, you were just, people having a conversation with other people and you can't ignore the role that that plays in whether or not people are willing to talk to you about this this kind of stuff. Well, the work was really, really important and really beautifully executed, so I'm grateful for it. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Family Tapestry. The mission of Family Tapestry is to weave together our community to transform the foster care experience. Visit FamilyTapestry.org. And the Texas Private Schools Association represents more than 850 private accredited nonprofit schools in Texas. With completely different missions, models, traditions, and teaching styles, private schools provide excellence for everyone. Visit TexasPrivateSchools.org slash excellence for everyone. Okay, Ross, uh, kick us off. Let's talk about this Confederate plaque that's on the wall in the Capitol. You Such wrote lighthearted topics. On wrote, I know you wrote this uh, pretty scathing uh, editorial uh, op-ed this morning. Uh, I guess column this morning is the appropriate term. Yeah, land wherever you want. Land <laughs> wherever you want. It's scathing. That's where I land. That basically says, you know, look, if you guys wanted to do something about this historically inaccurate plaque in the Capitol, all you need is a crowbar and the you know opinion of a couple high-ranking officials. Yeah, you know, and I. You know, probably as an act of civil disobedience, you know, I mean, we had a conversation in the newsroom. I won't name names. Um, but, you know, one of the editors said, you know, it would have been interesting politics for somebody to just go in with a crowbar and take it out and, you know, sort of, you See know. See what happens. Come after yeah. me. Um, I mean, it would have gotten whoever that was some headlines, you know. And I think Eric Johnson from Dallas has probably wondered a couple of times why he didn't just grab a crowbar and a screwdriver and just do this. Um, he mentioned it um, in officially in August of 2017. He sent a letter to the head of the State Preservation Board, which is, you know, sort of the boss of stuff at the Capitol. You know, here's where you can put a bookcase, here's where you can put a desk, and here's where you can put fallacious, you know, plaques. Um, and copied the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker, you know, 
everybody you could think of, and nothing's happened for a year, uh, except that an election went by, and we're now out of the reach of voters for at least a minute here, and this has suddenly accelerated. So now the uh, the attorney general has told the governor that either the state preservation board or the legislature can pull this down. The head of the state preservation board, miraculously, is the governor. The co-chairs <laughs> are the speaker and the lieutenant governor. The and current the speaker, yes. Well, whoever the speaker yeah, is right. at any given moment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the people who didn't act, you know, and now they're uh, kind of in a position where they're acting. And, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, you get a lot of symbols you know, whether it's Confederate stuff or something else, you get symbols all the time where you say, this group likes this, this group doesn't like this, and there's an argument. This one's a little bit different in that it's flatly wrong. It's just yeah, bullshit. The language it's is like, total bullshit. I mean, it basically says there's, flat out that, you know, slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War. It says true history and this wasn't about slavery all in right. the same sentence. It's like your brain blows up. And then you go back and you read the Declaration of um, Secession from the state of Texas, and it says, you know, you do a search on it. I did this yesterday. You know, it was right in the column. It's like, you know, find slavery in this document. 31 hits. You know, oh, that's interesting. It's not about that, but <laughs> funny that they mentioned well, it. I, th- I think it's, the, it's crazy. Yeah, well, and, and it's interesting, though, and, I mean, somewhat depressing, that the reason that, people might end up coalescing around this is because there's something actually wrong with it. And even that's taken so long. Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways you see these symbols and for people of color and particularly black people, like none of this is new, right? Like any sort of resistance to taking down these symbols, particularly when they're false, like none of that is actually new. It's just like life. And so, but I think, particularly around this one because it is so false and that it's still taken this long that it survived a 95 renovation right. of the Capitol. And people were like, eh, that's fine. Let's just put it back up there. So so the the optimistic view, which I can't justify, but I'll just state it. Uh, <laughs> the, the optimistic view here is that because this one's wrong, it's going to have to come down. And because this one comes down and because they were so damn slow about it, they make it such an issue that maybe that leads you to some of the other ones that, you know, might have been harder arguments. But, you know, you get into this and you say, look, that one came down. This one's also malarkey. That's BS. That's BS. I, I just think this one has to come down because it's laid out so clearly in black and white. I mean, well, and no pun something that occurred to me while I was doing this was that, you know, the, on this plaque, it says, you know, commissioned or whatever in 1959. And everybody's sort of been dating it to that. And now we got to thinking about it. You know, the Capitol was renovated in 19... 19- uh, 91 through 95 while they were building the capital extension and all of that this thing was pulled down they painted the wall they refinished it and they put the plaque back up in 1995 so you know but do you think someone s- went by and was like reading all the plaques before they I'm put them sure back every, up or I, you I know that when they were I know that when they job. were doing all the capital stuff they were so careful with this yeah. piece of mortise goes exactly where they put it the first time and this brick can't be moved they cataloged everything. They looked at everything. They made every decision all over again. And I think there were some Confederates in the Capitol 20 years ago. So who's driving this? I mean, it seems a little bit like, well, okay, I'm going to do this little piece of it. You're going to do this little piece of it. We're going to have this little committee hearing. I mean, who's in charge? <laughs> who's leading this initiative? They Leading the initiative to pull it down? Yeah, well, Is I mean, I know uh, Eric, Johnson, Eric Johnson was say. the initial one. But, you know, we have a ruling from Paxton. Is Are they trying to sort of urge each other along or all decide, like, well, we, we all agree on these different levels, and so we're finally going to do this? I mean, well, why is it taking so long? This this has, you know, a link back to what you were talking about on the desegregation stuff. You know, they look at this stuff and they say, 
they might say, this is my policy or that's my policy, but then they look at their voters or a poll and they say, well, the voters are over here. And, you know, we did some polling on this uh, in the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll. And, you know, if you look at Republican voters, they're not crazy about pulling monuments down. And, you know, all of those people who stood for election, Dan Patrick, Greg Abbott, yada, 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 um, were looking at those same kinds of polls and saying, you know, if I pull down this, you know, Robert E. Lee or I pull down this thing over here or I pull down that plaque, it's going to look that way to my voters. Um, as narrowly as they won some of their elections, they were probably right to be nervous. But, you know, it, it does show, you know, that their political considerations sometimes outweigh what their other considerations might be. Well, it also, I think, underscores, I mean, there was a line in your column in, when you talked about the renovation and said, you know, it turns out the Confederacy lasted a bit longer than we thought it did. But I think, like, this is also a reflection that that sort of idea is not a thing of the past. I mean, I think the last couple of, I mean, the last couple of years have really sort of brought that to the surface in ways that we hadn't seen in decades. But, like, this sort of mentality is not gone in any way. And if you, I mean, not ascribing this sort of mentality to any political party in particular, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I think sure. generally you can, we can all agree that the idea of white supremacy is not gone. And it's fights like this that sort of underscore that. A uh, question on social media. If the plaque is removed, will anything replace it? Probably just paint, <laughs> my right. guess. Paul, a Paul Sherwin-Williams. <laughs> um, right. Just to, like, loop this back to our project. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, if you want to be provocative, if they really want true history, they ought to hang up the articles of, of secession and show people what the state of Texas was thinking at the time and let that sink in. I mean, that's, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, Ali and I have been thinking about this in the context of one of our trips back from Longview, <laughs> in which we—it's a long drive. In, it? It's yeah. a very long it drive. There long are not a lot, a lot of food options on the way, and on one of those occasions, we actually so you were tired and hangry, is it? <laughs> right. We, we well, accidentally we were dazed and confused. Dazed and confused because we accidentally ended up having lunch at a Confederate-themed diner called Johnny Reb's Dixie Cafe. <laughs> With uh, a portrait of Robert E. Lee by the bathroom on your way in. Um, it was quite an interesting moment. And we later learned that it was mm -hmm. featured in Texas Monthly's Best Small Town Diners. And that How was published ago? during the tenure of one Evan Smith. Oh, <laughs> boy. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we'll have a follow-up conversation with him after this podcast. Well, more about this later, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Bills Up Now, AIM, the Texas Private Schools Association, and Family Tapestry, our sponsors this week, and an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alexa, Aaliyah, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for joining us.